Hello and welcome to the week on Wednesday. I am your regular co-host Van Batten, but today I'm not with Ben Davison. I'm on my own apart from the presence of a very special guest. Now, this is the first of our week on Wednesday special interviews where I speak to people I find interesting. And let me tell you, our first guest is an absolute cracker. In 2018, at the height of the Trump administration, an op-ed appeared in the New York Times entitled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration, in which an unnamed national security official detailed the absolute chaos, dysfunction and, you know, threat to the existence on life on Earth posed by the then President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. This article was followed in 2019 with a book called A Warning that came from the same anonymous source who campaigned for the removal of Donald Trump from office. In 2020, that person was revealed to be Miles Taylor, a career national security expert who had absolutely reached the end of his tolerance with what he saw going on at the White House. Now, In a regular universe, in the alternative timeline where Donald Trump does not appear, people like Miles Taylor and I don't really hang out. He was an official in the Bush administration. He is the kind of person who describes himself as fiscally conservative, socially progressive, a small L libertarian, and the kind of person who was quite outwardly my kind of political enemy for the majority of my democratic life. But Miles and I have found ourselves on the same side in the desperate and intense battle to save democracy and the institutions of democracy from attacks by an organized, militant, and very, very angry hard right. He has just written a book called Blowback, which is about his personal experiences inside the Trump administration, the things he saw and the horror he witnessed. And I am absolutely honoured to have this man on our podcast. Miles, amazing. I speed read your book Blowback, which is about your experiences on the inside, uh, the outside, and then stalked in the streets by the Trump administration and its fans. It is an absolute page turner. I have never read a political thriller um, that's quite as terrifying. I'm trying to come to terms with the fact that you were not driven completely insane, although the book suggests that you got pretty close to it (laughs) more than once. How are you feeling? Yeah. Yeah. uh, Look, it's it's good to have it out there. Uh, You said you speed read it. I wish I'd speed written it. (laughs) It would have been nice. Uh, to have uh, to have not had it been such a laborious process, but but look, I'll confess this: the book ended up being uh, a, a lot more personal than I had intended. I originally set out to write a forecast of how dangerous the second term of Donald Trump would be because I was pretty annoyed that all of these ex-Trump officials were writing these self-congratulatory memoirs about how great they all were, and no one was saying, "But the threat is still there." And uh, but in that process, you know, it it felt necessary to talk about some of the things that had happened in the past and and what that would mean for the future. Um, 
and, and that led to a little bit more personal place than I anticipated. So I, I now feel like I'm standing naked in front of everyone. So let's see if they laugh. Oh, look, if you're going to stand naked, you might as well do it in front of the whole world and for the sake of democracy. <laughs> Actually, one of the things I really I think is so powerful about the book is that you are a person. You are not a faceless bureaucrat. You're not a anonymous staffer. You're a human being who's going through issues with your family and issues with yourself. And it's actually the fact that you talk about your experiences within the administration as a human being that I think makes the book so terrifying that this person who we recognise as someone who's hanging out with friends and drinking at bars and getting into fights, you know, about staying in the Trump administration or going is a person who's literally in the room where it happened and I think it's incredibly brave for you to do that. And one of my favourite insights of the book is when you say that anonymity doesn't stop authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got to say, you know, reaching that conclusion took me a long time and it obviously uh, required a lot of making a lot of mistakes to reach that conclusion that anonymity actually really just benefits authoritarians at the end of the day and that we we do have to attach our names to our criticisms uh, if we want to lower that price of dissent for other people. And and I'm sort of a cautionary tale of what happens when you try to have it both ways. I mean, I, I'll be very honest with you about it. You know, as soon as I had published the anonymous opinion piece from within the administration in the New York Times, um, I was confident in the decision at the time because I knew it would draw attention to the message instead of giving Trump a chance to brawl with the messenger, which is always what he does. He distracts attention by finding something else. And, and this deprived him of any opportunity to create a distraction. And it was the same thing when I wrote it in longer form in a book called A Warning and did it anonymously. But but here's the real truth behind all of that is once those things came out, uh, there were two public narratives. And one was that this anonymous guy was a resistance superhero and was somehow going to save us from Donald Trump. And maybe he's working on a way to get him out of power. And another was this narrative that it was a, a treasonous, you know, guy trying to launch a coup from within and was clearly, uh, you know, an enemy of the state. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't think either description was real. That wasn't me. That wasn't my intention. And so uh, I felt the opposite of brave. I felt really scared about the prospect of coming forward because I knew I didn't live up to either of those descriptions. I didn't see myself as a hero. And I certainly didn't think I was a traitor. In fact, you know, the term resistance was misconstrued. You know, we weren't trying to defy the lawful orders of a commander in chief, but rather to keep the president of the United States from doing things that were illegal and deeply immoral. That's not a resistance. That's just doing the right thing. And so but I knew I, if I didn't unmask myself eventually, I, I knew it would haunt me for the rest of of my life, but it took a lot of psyching myself up to go out there because this is a very brutal environment. And I did take it from all sides. Once I went public, um, I of course, but, you know, received it from the MAGA, uh, side and we still have restraining orders to this day against 
some very scary figures who made threats against my family. But I also took it from the left because you get folks who come out and say, why didn't you speak out sooner? And uh, yeah, you know, I spent a number of years reckoning with those critiques and trying to figure out where I stand. And honestly, the place that I landed is that I very much wish I came out sooner, but not for the reasons that critics would suggest. Uh, but because I found out when I did unmask myself to campaign against Trump, it was a breath of fresh air because a whole bunch of my colleagues came out and joined me. And I sort of belatedly realized, oh, my God, that's what I needed to do is I needed to just give other people the air cover and show them, hey, the water's warm. It's OK to be a Republican that defects from the tribe and speaks out against him. And so if I have one regret, it's that, you know, I didn't do it a year sooner because that would have given me another 12 months, I think, to recruit even more people to turn against this guy. It, it's an amazing book in the reminder of just how – this sort of madness that we were all in, like we were in all the president's men, except it was an episode of Black Mirror. And as a, a citizen of an, <laughs> of an ally of the United States, you know, so far away, the Trump administration made it very clear to all of us how we essentially live or die by American will. And if the most powerful person in the government of our most powerful ally is threatening to nuke hurricanes or invade North Korea or build moats at the bottom. I mean, these things have enormous implications for us. And I remember when your your piece came out in the New York Times, the original anonymous piece, and it, and there was that discussion about it around is should this person have come forward earlier? Why are they there at all? Should they not just boycott this administration? I just remember feeling this enormous sense of relief that there were actually adults in the room, and this is something that comes up in the book, where there are like loyal servants of democratic principles who recognise that they're in a position to maintain some guardrails so this guy doesn't kill all of us. And I think that, you know, in terms of evaluating what you did in retrospect, the point was that it did appear at the time. And I think it gave hope to a lot more people than you realise that maybe we weren't on a on a crash course for nuclear annihilation. And certainly the the stakes of your book are they're terrifying. <laughs> They're genuinely terrifying. What is it like to be in the room when the president is threatening to nuke North Korea? Well, you know, there's a quote in the book from someone that was close to Donald Trump and is now no longer in his orbit. And, and the person said something to the effect of the country can survive bad policy, but it can't survive bad people. And by no means were all of the early figures in the Trump administration saints, but a lot of really well-meaning people did go in. People who had a very dim view of Donald Trump, people like me who hadn't voted for Donald Trump. I didn't vote for him. I didn't support him. I worked very hard to actually prevent him from becoming president. Um, but when they got in, it was a lot worse than I think most folks even projected that it would be. And you cite nuclear threats as an example. And that had been the hyperbole of, you know, the political campaign season before Trump won. You know, can you trust this man with his finger on the nuclear button on the on the proverbial red button? 
but you don't actually ever imagine that that's the situation you're going to be in. And yet when Trump came into office, almost immediately, at least early in the first year, we started to find ourselves in those situations where he was actually stirring up nuclear threats to the United States. And you specifically point to North Korea. That was the big concern. And and I want to make a note here. When the United States of America engages in uh, serious threats against foreign rivals, it's the type of thing that is very carefully discussed, crafted, and staged. You know, if you're going to make a nuclear threat, you know, all of the people in your national security cabinet are meeting and talking and gaming out scenarios and gaming out language and wording. But we came into office and found out that Donald Trump in a tweet was willing to level a nuclear threat against another nuclear armed country, North Korea. And no one had any control over that cell phone. And what he tweeted on that cell phone could very well lead us into a spiral of misunderstanding that led to conflict. And this got so bad that we actually had to start convening emergency meetings at the Department of Homeland Security to talk about what our nuclear preparations were to defend the United States homeland. Now, in the past, the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, has done all sorts of exercises. Of course, we would do exercises to plan for terrorist attacks or a terrorist with a dirty bomb. But as far as I'm aware, never in the history of the department since it was created after 9-11 did DHS leaders ever meet to talk about the possibility of a real nuclear strike. And we did. And it was more than once. We had a series of meetings because we were really worried we could end up in that situation. And, and the defense secretary at the time, Jim Mattis, said to us, you better prepare like we're going to war because even he didn't know what the president would do next. And so we had these frantic meetings. And, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about the details of those except to say that I was walking out of those meetings thinking, oh, my God, we are not prepared for this. You know, we're just not prepared as a country for what he might be leading us into. And luckily, there were people like Jim Mattis and John Kelly that kept the the wheels on the wagon, if you will. But um, we were much closer than I think people realized to ending up in a in a very dire situation. Now, thankfully, and sort of inexplicably, Trump did a complete 180 the following year and decided he wanted to write love letters to Kim Jong-un. And, and I will confess at the time thinking how disgusting it was that we would engage with a foreign dictator uh, as directly as he did with Kim Jong-un. But you know what? It also probably saved us from nuclear war. So I'd rather he write Kim Jong-un love letters than recklessly tweet out threats that could lead us into a nuclear spiral. But that's the situation we were in at the time. You know, reading your book and a lot of the commentary that I've observed online since the the rise of Trump has been really fascinating for someone like for someone like me, like I am a democratic socialist laborist activist from Australia. I, I grew up during the Cold War. Uh, people like Bill Crystal were considered, you know, just this neocon nightmare in the United States. And someone like someone like you, someone like John. I mean, I remember when John McCain ran for president. We're all terrified he was going to beat Obama. And certainly, this sort of, you know, ongoing ideological war between the centre-left and the centre-right that was usually about the regulation of markets. 
And then in the past few years, of course, these old antagonisms have dissolved because we find ourselves on the same side and and confronting what I think is a bigger threat than any of us thought in the West that we would ever see again, which is the rise of a, a radical populist movement that is entirely anti-democratic and authoritarian. I think it's been a really interesting time uh, for that kind of alliance building and, and sort of reinvesting in, in what democracy means to all of its believers. But I want to start with you and your political journey because I, I look at people like you and uh, and Bill Crystal and people like Tom Nichols and you know these principled modern conservatives who are turning around and looking at what's going on, going, well, how did this happen? So, so tell me about your journey and how you got into the Trump administration. Yeah, well, I do have to say at the top end that there is something cathartic about the alliance building when something so significant like democracy is under threat. I mean, I'm sure our politics are wildly different. I'm this, you know, small L libertarian that believes in extremely limited government and blah, 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 blah. But none of that matters. It's all blah, 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 if democracy is in danger. (laughs) And, And, you know, I do think it's the silver lining of periods of threat like this is it reminds people what their core principles are and what needs to be defended. And I would love to return to the days where, you know, here in the United States, we're debating about the corporate tax rate and healthcare reform and real issues. But right now, the fabric of our republic really is at risk. And and that journey for me started in a very different place. And it was a place of resolve and optimism about the direction we were going uh, probably nothing more than the September 11th attacks had an effect uh, on my thinking. Uh, nothing had a, a bigger effect on my thinking about politics uh, in the world than that terrorist attack. It was really a wake up call. And I resolved that I wanted to go into public service to make sure a day like that never happened again. And my whole career uh, at that point looked like it was going to be focused on national security and not just countering terrorism. Uh, but combating authoritarianism overseas and the root causes of terror, extreme poverty and, you know, political divisiveness and civil strife. And all of these things are what animated me about going into government. And, and so I did. And I, you know, ended up in the Pentagon and the Bush White House and uh, wound up on Capitol Hill for a number of years and, and frankly, uh, was inspired by those opportunities. I really felt like I was finally in a position where I was working with the good guys to beat the bad guys. And, um, you know, I describe in the book how my very first job in D.C. was uh, as what we call a congressional page on Capitol Hill. For 200 years, Congress, uh, incredibly, every year brings in a few dozen 16-year-old kids to work on the floor of the House of Representatives in the Senate. And it's been happening since the Continental Congress and, you know, back in the 18th century. And there's no better front row seat to democracy than being a page. I mean, you're a kid in your formative years right there with the nation's leaders, like literally right by their side, you know, running basic errands for them, but witnessing them joke and cut deals and really work to keep the country running. And right after 9-11, 
you know, I saw all of this bipartisanship and these two sides that fought frequently saying, no, no, we got to work together to defend the country. Now, the Iraq war certainly poisoned some of that bipartisan unity. But before that, you know, there was just this enormous sense of purpose. And in the years that followed, especially during Barack Obama's presidency, I witnessed our politics get a lot coarser. And then the exclamation point on that was the rise of Donald Trump. And the unity had largely burned off. And I was still on the national security side. I never worked on a campaign. I wasn't in electoral politics. But I was a stalwart Republican. But as he rose, the my fear was, well, this guy's not even a Republican at all. In fact, he's flip-flopped party registration a zillion times, and he certainly doesn't stand for conservative principles. In fact, he doesn't stand for any clear principles whatsoever. And so I think it was pretty clear at the beginning that he was a threat. Now, no one, myself included, thought he had any chance of winning the presidency. But the mere fact that he was going on the debate stage in an American presidential election and spouting off racist, bigoted, ignorant things was embarrassing as a Republican and as an American. I mean, I genuinely just felt embarrassed that we had someone like that on the debate stage. And so um, I decided for the first time ever to get involved in electoral politics and, and behind the scenes that was, you know, trying to do what I could to help blunt uh, Trump's rise. And, and clearly we, we, we failed very miserably in doing that. I'm trying to work out where the shift occurred because, you know, growing up when I did, the image I had of the sort of the neocons and the Reagan generation in the United States that carried on was of conservatives who were pro-military, who were, you know, committed to sort of principles of patriotism and honour, duty, and were pro-establishment and pro-institutional. And that they were they were powerful branding for that ideological movement. And now I, I can't I can't see a trace of anything that I would see as admirable in the kind of Trump movement and how that's become like a virus taking over you know, Republican caucuses and primary processes. And how, how do you think that that transition took place? Was it always there and it just required somebody like Trump? Was it more of a, a deliberate intervention by the likes of Steve Bannon, whom I'm very glad is a, a villain in your book as well? He certainly emerges as one in mine. <laughs> I think he is in real life too. <laughs> like literally, he's the Nathan Bedford Forrest of modern politics. I think he's an organic genius and literally terrifying. Yeah, well, you know, I, I do have to make an aside there is, is some of the scarier figures in Trump's orbit, like Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller, you know, people want to think that because they're so villainous that they must also be stupid. Um, but they're not. I, I will tell you, both of those men are exceptionally intelligent and they synthesize well as thinkers. They're both immensely well read and they also know what they're doing in terms of they understand that Donald Trump's an idiot and they understand that he is their puppet. And that makes them even scarier to me. Um, you know, I would have conversations with Stephen Miller and, and, and again, frankly, be impressed at his level of intelligence, how articulate he was and his understanding of history. Um, and I think he deployed that 
to great effect in manipulating, uh, or not even manipulating, but in steering Donald Trump the direction he wanted to. Manipulation would, would assume that Trump wasn't willing to go that direction, and, and he certainly uh, was willing. Um, but, you know, th- that turn in our politics you describe as a virus. And frankly, I think it's the most concise way I've heard anyone say it, because the speed and almost inexplicable nature of the transformation of the Republican Party continues to astound me. And it did happen in viral fashion because the Republican Party I joined was about, you know, a strong military, but also protecting freedom abroad. I mean, there's this Wilsonian strain in American politics that actually predates Woodrow Wilson in in this notion of defending uh, freedom abroad. Now, we can have healthy disagreements in our polity about whether we should be defending freedom abroad by force or by soft power or what that should look like. But at its core, America stood up for human freedom and human dignity and against autocracy, period. I mean, it was, it's, it's probably, you know, the most unifying thing about our foreign policy that in school they call it the Washington consensus because it's seen as this central pillar. But Donald Trump comes along and takes a wrecking ball to all of that. And people like me made a really grievous mistake in thinking that he was an aberration. And he was uniquely bad as a person, but those were character defects and they weren't representative of a wider movement. Uh, But what I think we missed was that leadership matters and a leader can actually can really transform what the public thinks. And you can look back to, you know, World War II when America was very isolationist and we had leaders that transformed popular opinion. Uh, you know, certainly the Pearl Harbor attack did, but, but leadership really made a big difference in how people thought of U.S. foreign policy. And Donald Trump's views did infect the wider Republican Party such that a lot of those core tenets that America supports, you know, human freedom abroad and believes in free markets and free people and democratic institutions have seemingly been reversed under his leadership or lack thereof. And that's been really shocking for people like me and Bill Crystal and Tom, you know, Nichols, who you mentioned to witness because it's, it's just antithetical to what, we had built our careers around in the Republican Party. And now when you look at surveys, the GOP base, your average GOP voter tends to align now with Donald Trump's views that are protectionist, that are, you know, anti-trade, that are anti-freedom, that are antithetical to democratic institutions. It's so much so that you can credibly describe the MAGA movement in viewing democracy's guardrails, not as guardrails, but as impediments. And as recently as this past week or two, we've seen Donald Trump out there talking about taking a wrecking ball to democracy's guardrails because they're what's preventing him from getting retribution. Uh, and he cited and he name checked those, the, the judiciary and the justice system, the media. I mean, he goes out in speeches and he name checks these institutions uh, again as impediments to a MAGA worldview rather than the things that they are, the things that undergird our democracy. It's so interesting because the temptation with covering Trump is always to make a mockery of him and to focus on his personality and, you know, his egregious character. I mean, he's monstrous 
human being, the number of prejudices he holds, the fact that he's proud and outspoken about that, the way that he targets individuals. But to read him as a a symptom of a, a broader movement that has as its object the dismantling of democracy I think that gets lost a lot in in media coverage because he is so good at just occupying this, you know, TV guru kind of space. But, I mean, it is very obvious that democracy in the United States has taken a real battering in the wake of Trump. And I'm wondering what you think about the present moment and the effort that the Biden administration has put in into obviously rebuilding democratic norms, having a president who is not completely off pace, who could potentially declare nuclear war in a tweet. I'd say that is unlikely. But in terms of institutional recovery, what is the health check on the United States now? Well, I had hoped when Biden came in, that it marked a new beginning and that we would get to, you know, etch the death date into the tombstone of Trumpism. I'm afraid to say, I think the Biden administration has only been a hiatus. And I do worry that the worst is yet to come. And I really never expected to be in a position to say that. In fact, in the weeks after Donald Trump left office, uh, I talk about this a little bit in the book, you know, a group of us convened a group of, you know, former, uh, you know, Republican officials and a number of sitting Republican Democrat or sorry, Republican congressmen and senators to talk about how do we move on beyond Trump? Like, you know, let's start the project now. And there was about 200 of us on, on this, you know, half day session um, painting a picture about what the GOP needed to do to, to move past Trump. And, you know, fast forward three years, everything that we discussed that day has basically been eviscerated um, because the pendulum didn't swing back. If anything, Donald Trump is stronger politically than he's ever been, despite being impeached, despite being indicted multiple times. He's on the cusp of being indicted again. And yet he has this strength because the tribalism is so strong in the Republican Party right now. And what does that mean for democracy? I think it spells very bad things. And we've all heard it a million times, the old adage uh, that Reagan repurposed into, you know, freedom's always a generation away from extinction. But America's founding fathers said that at the outset as well. I mean, Benjamin Franklin, you know, famously left uh, the negotiations around the, uh, you know, the new republic and and said, uh, you know, they, he was asked, what do we have? And he said, yeah, a republic, if you can keep it. Like, because there's always been a concern that we could throw it all away. And I do feel like we are very close to throwing it all away because he's still in our politics and still has a very, very viable path back to the presidency. And I think that's what's lost on people is there's a tendency, and I'm sure it's evolutionary in nature, to try to disregard uh, you know, opinion or you try to disregard information uh, that might be negative and to, to compartmentalize it and suppress it. And so there's sort of been a collective denial among elites in our political system the past few years about the return of Donald Trump. I mean, everyone has sort of assumed that the judiciary would take him down or something would take him down, but there's no way he could be president again. But at this moment, as you and I speak, he has, um, He's not just got a path to the presidency. He is 
depending on the poll you look at, the single most competitive person in the United States to retake the White House. I mean, several recent polls in the last month have shown him beating Joe Biden if the race had been held today. Now, others show the opposite. But again, we're talking about matters of degree here. And and that's leaving democracy to a coin toss. Um, That is really shocking, I think, when folks realize that that's the case. And there, there isn't yet a person who seems prepared to be able to take Donald Trump down in the primary process. So all of that to say, my assessment of democratic health in the United States is quite grim. But the upside, the, the optimist view is that we've been in dark places before, and it's entirely within our control. The voters control the direction of our country like they do any democratic polity. And we have a chance to avoid making these civic errors uh, and making the same mistake we made in 2016. But if we don't, this time, I don't think we can rebound from it. And, and that's a quote from John Bolton in the book, who I suspect is someone else that you would also consider a very strange bedfellow oh, in this I fight have, for democracy. I have literally is, marched with placards against John Bolton in his various capacities yeah. over the years. And this is, I mean, right? this is, it, it's so interesting. Like it seems like such a privilege to have, have lived through a period of history where I actually got to protest the people who are, are, are protesting Trump now. Like that seems like a golden yeah. era for vanished civilization, <laughs> and and I mean, this is, sure does. Wouldn't it be wonderful to go back to those protests? You know, in some ways, but I also think you know the strange boon of this period is certainly I've seen what's happened on the centre right, and it's obviously not just the United mm-hmm. States. Like they came very close to electing the far right in Spain. Obviously, this is a problem in Germany. It's a problem in Finland. Britain has become the first empire in history to vote itself into poverty, which has been fascinating to watch, frankly, as as the (laughs) the former colonial property of of Great Britain watching that happen has been most curious. But certainly we're seeing this worldwide hard right movement that's eating away at the traditional bulwarks of a centrist democratic discussion. And for me Mm -hmm. it's, you know, the... The sort of bizarre privilege of this time for me is seeing the interrogation of my own assumptions, especially around things like disinformation and information siloing and wanting to believe things because you like them rather than they're being true. I think it's actually been very healthy for anyone who's pro-democracy to go, well, how does this get out of control? What are the structures we need in place to stop authoritarianism? And not to mention, you know, the interesting lesson for the the Western leftist is that, you know, American imperialism is terrible, but by God, you miss it when it's gone. And I think the situation in Ukraine (laughs) is a really blinding example of that, that what's happened is that, I mean, it's not reading your book and reading other writers around this period and about Trump. I mean, it's it's impossible to see Trump outside of the context of Russian territorial ambitions in Ukraine and how destabilising the United States and in- encouraging isolationism very much serve the Russian imperialist agenda. Yeah, well, it, you know, I'm really glad that you point to the global 
uh, authoritarian strain in international politics because these things are no longer confined within borders. And that was actually something that I worried about midway through the Trump administration is there was a lot of criticism, rightfully, of what was happening in the United States. But in my view, there was a lack of recognition that what was happening here was symbolic of what was happening all over the place. We saw far-right political movements popping up in a lot of Western democracies, and we are seeing those movements engage online and across borders, just like any other movement, is they're not confined to where they are. And people like Steve Bannon, as you mentioned, before Trump was even elected, he made that observation. He said, look, you know, the people who are trying to create political movements like ours are all over the world and we need to unite them. And of course, the oddity there is a pseudo authoritarian wanting to unite other authoritarians, but from the United States of America. And that is happening. These movements are working together. It's why the U.S. Conservative Political Action Conference held one of its main meetings I think it was last year in Hungary is because they're just lavishing praise on Viktor Orban, who's demonstrated very repressive anti-immigrant, anti-democratic tendencies. Um, and these groups uniting, I think it complicates the fight against authoritarianism because a hundred years ago uh, during the great wars, it was nation states that were democratic against nation states that were not. But now we have movements that flow in between nation states that are autocratic, and that makes them much more difficult to combat. And it makes it harder for the fight to be black and white and good guy versus bad guy. And I think that's why this particular period that we're going into uh, to defend democracy is harder than I think any other period in which human freedom has had to be defended because the threats to it are so diffuse and difficult to uh, to thwart. And, and, and it makes it a true grassroots fight. I mean, you know, if you want to go back to the founding of the American Republic, most of the debate about the country was a debate among elites. Uh, but right now, the, the answer to the protection of freedom is a grassroots answer because popular opinion, uh, you know, the individual is more empowered than they've ever been because of technology. And therefore, popular opinion uh, can result in permanent uh, changes to electoral politics. It's it's really quite extraordinary that what the modern authoritarian has realised is that they've sort of they don't believe in borders when it comes to authoritarianism, but they are nationalists when it comes to domestic politics. Ironic, isn't it? I've never heard anyone say that, but but deeply ironic. Yeah, it's this extraordinary. Uh, this extraordinary contradiction they've managed to sustain. So in Australia, obviously, our system is very different because we are, and feel free to laugh out loud, still a constitutional monarchy. It's still funny after all this time. <laughs> but It is still funny. It is, it's still, it's, 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 I voted for the Republic. My conscience is very clear. Other people's, not quite so much. But what's what in Australia, obviously, our political culture is very different, not only because of the way that we have or have not dealt with colonialism, but because we have compulsory voting, all of our elections are contested around the centre. And because if you don't, if you have to win the majority and you can only do that by the building of vast coalitions in order to scoop up enough votes for a majority. That being said, 
our radical fringe is heavily uh, subsumed into the dis- disinformation communities that are coming from the United States and obviously Russia. And we now have this radical fringe who, because there is no space for them in electoral politics, are turning towards uh, violence and threat and intimidation as, uh, you know, sort of like a perpetual coup because they're so full of this kind of this internationalised disinformation. Something very interesting that happened here was we had uh, protests against lockdown and obviously Australians embraced lockdowns. We had them everywhere. I've essentially done three years of hard time or home arrest um, because of the various places <laughs> I work when, when lockdown happened. Yeah. I got a lot of reading done, which was great. But we had these quite violent protests that took place in particularly Sydney and Melbourne that were essentially being staged for an international audience where Americans were being told that Australia was a totalitarian country. And as it turned out, those protests were actually organised by a group in Germany who had managed to mobilise this community of radical actors through the internet to take street action here, which was being used for media imagery to feed back to those disinformation communities in the United States. And it's how we, how you even negotiate that, let alone as a national security person, let alone as a citizen is really difficult. Like how is the security establishment dealing with this dispersed and internationalized threat? Uh, I don't think they're dealing with it very well. And I still talk to a lot of friends who are in the Biden administration who are, you know, leading counterterrorism efforts, leading counter disinformation efforts. And they're really, really struggling with, let alone how to address the problem. They're struggling with how to even track the problem because it's moving at such a pace that uh, authorities can't even keep up. And even if they could, there are enormous privacy implications for trying to figure out how to keep up with this. And, uh, you know, we're about to see this problem get put on steroids with the spread of artificial intelligence technology. And, and I actually think the implications for democracy are, um, are, are quite grave when you think about certain aspects of AI. Now, you know, we could get into a deeper conversation on that because I also think there are some upsides. I mean, there are ways that artificial intelligence tools and new technologies can reintroduce humanity into our politics and lower the temperature. Um, but in this current moment, it's nightmare fuel for disinformation. And we will experience that in 2024 in the U.S. presidential election. We've only had a tiny taste of it, um, but it's going to be it's going to be really big and it's going to make what happened with Russian election interference look very clunky and pedestrian. I mean, you know, let's just flash back to 2016 for uh, a minute. You know, the Russians had real human beings sitting at computers trying to pretend to be Americans. And in hindsight, some of the screenshots look sort of comical. You know, the grammar was bad and some of their assumptions about American politics were really off. But they managed to hoodwink millions of Americans and inflame debates in this country and influence the outcome of a democratic Election That's really significant. Uh, now, they don't need to assemble human beings that have to learn the language and do things that are clunky. They can create generative AI agents 
that are indistinguishable from humans and deploy them in mass and make them unrecognizable. We still have not grappled with what the implications of that are. And I can tell you from having led those efforts in the federal government uh, in the United States, we're not ready to combat it. We are not ready and we don't have the tools. And so then we're really, really, really dependent on just your average voter discerning good information from bad information uh, and making the right choice. Uh, we're, we're really, really dependent on that. And, um, you know, I don't have a whole lot of confidence that people are going to be able to look through the noise and, uh, and see the truth in an environment like that. So it does make this moment we're in especially precarious, as you said. My hope with the AI, the, and especially the rapid growth of AI on the internet and the way that people have approached it through social media is that it sows, my hope was that it would sow enormous distrust in anything that wasn't institutionally produced, that it would see, this is a bit, this is very blue sky thinking, ho, 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 that it would be like a renaissance <laughs> of media masthead authority and discernible branding and attribution just because if you if you can manipulate the tools of disinformation yourself from your phone by creating a fake photo and knowing how those processes work, that you would then bring a, a, a healthy scepticism to consuming unattributed media somewhere else. Do you think that we've, we're going to reach that stage of enlightenment or have I been spending too much time in my lounge room? No, I, I'm an optimist about it in that I think we are going to there's going to be just grassroots consumer demand for stronger digital identity because people don't like to get scammed. That's the core of it. And it's not because the people are worried about the health of democracy or they're worried about these blue sky things that you and I are. It's at the end of the day, people don't want to get screwed and they don't want to have their you know digital wallet stolen from. And so they really want the security of knowing that the people they're interacting with in the virtual space are real and trustworthy. And so there will be a movement towards that. But there's something that gives me another degree of optimism, which is that, uh, and I spent a lot of time actually working in the tech sector and on technology policy. And these were questions that we were grappling with, which is that right now, the period that we're in with social media is highly divisive in part because it's very dehumanizing. When you engage with someone on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok, even though you may see a picture, you're not really seeing a person and it's easier to dehumanize them if you don't know them, if you can't see, hear, touch, smell. Um, it's very easy to do that psychologically is to turn that person into just an avatar in your mind and attack them. And then we've seen that phenomenon, you know, multiplied billions of times across trillions of interactions, uh, and it creates more social division. However, as technology gets better, and there's the ability to create augmented reality and virtual reality that brings a real person into the moment, studies show that psychologically, people find it harder to attack them. It's, you know, more simply put, what people say in a tweet, they wouldn't say to you in the street. Because there is evolutionary biology built into us that makes us, at the end of the day, want to protect our species and survive. And so, you know, it's what you would call humanity. There is an inherent humanity 
in our species. And so I do think there's the ability in the coming years to start to reintroduce that into technology and hopefully lower the temperature. And there's a lot of great people focused on bringing that to social media products. But I don't have a lot of confidence that it's going to happen uh, in the near term uh, when we really need it to. But um, but I do think in the longer term, there, there there is some hope there. Oh, but the owners of the social media platforms are so responsible and obviously business owners <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. You can trust us. I've, I've, I've got to say, Elon Musk is not really, uh, he's not really platforming, um, you know, the inherent genius of the free market or capitalism by setting a brand with $44 billion on fire in the past couple of days. And, I mean, there, there is yeah. a big conversation to be had about what tech regulation actually looks like because you can imagine from the kind of political communities that I'm from, the internet was incredibly liberating for us, for environmentalists, for feminists in particular. Yeah. The yeah. fact that feminists could find mm-hmm. a, a, an unmoderated space to have discussions about intimate subjects about sexual violence, about rape, about about abortion, about all of these different challenges that face women that haven't always been able to be spoken about publicly because of endangerment, marginalisation, all those things. The queer community, like the, the freedom of the internet has been really crucial to those movements, organising, debating and, and engaging, forming networks. But we're now in a situation where that, you know, that wonderful green pasture of unmoderated freedom has been absolutely compromised by the worst bad faith political actors in the world. And to the point where, I mean, I study QAnon, I study extremist movements online, and I'm terrified by some of the communities that I engage and their willingness to push absolute mythologies that are designed to inspire violence. And in the wake of January 6th, like I was amazed that America let the internet stay on. Like I personally was like, surely, surely the time has turn come it to off. turn it off. Somebody pull the plug. I mean, what does that what does that do to you as a as a kid who went in as an idealistic young Republican? motivated to serve their country, uphold the values of their political heroes, to see that building under attack seemingly, certainly with the encouragement, if not the legally attributable instigation of a president. Like what did that like assault on that symbol mean to you? Yeah, well, I, there, there, there was a, a deeply symbolic moment that um, that really brought it all together for me on January 6th. I refer to it a little bit in, in blowback. And, you know, I mentioned earlier going to Washington as a page and I you know, we got to sit in these desks at the back of the chamber where we had the view of, uh, you know, the citadel of democracy. I mean, this, you know, this extraordinary, uh, you know, free and open assembly. Uh, and I was optimistic about our politics then. Fast forward to January 6th. Uh, I'll never forget seeing pictures from inside the House chamber from that day. And there's this famous photo of the armed Capitol Police pointing their pistols at the entrance to the chamber as the insurrectionists are trying to punch their way through. And they created a makeshift barricade. And I did a double take when I saw the picture. And I looked and I realized, oh, my God. The desk that they pushed in front of the doors to barricade the chamber is the desk I sat at as a 16-year-old kid feeling so hopeful about American politics. 
And now it's the last line of defense against my fellow citizens wanting to overturn a free and fair election. Um, I still get chills when I think about that. I get chills saying that right now because it was such a whiplash turn in our politics. And, you know, I also I, I think that, you know, the thing you just noted about, you know, movements being able to conspire with each other online and across borders really tests those safeguards that the founders put in place. And it sounds a little bit boring to keep referring back to American political philosophy. But, you know, James Madison had this very famous essay in the Federalist Papers where he talked about factions and and about how it was human nature basically to fight each other and tear each other down and to conspire to suppress the freedom of other people. And they were very clear eyed about the fact that, you know, unchecked democracy in history typically led to authoritarianism because people banded together in mobs and then, you know, suppressed the freedom of the minority. And the solution to that in our constitution was to make it really hard for any of those groups to conspire, to basically pit factions against each other. And that would mean that across the country, it would be really hard for various factions to unite and for the majority to suppress the rights of the minority. But that was in the age before social media. And now it's actually become vastly easier for those movements to conspire. And I actually think that's what the MAGA movement is. I think it's the first time in American history in which we've seen the safeguards against factions fail. And we've seen the mob actually conspire into a real life, credible, viable political movement that's winning public offices around the country and that potentially could propel its leader uh, back into the White House. That does mean we have to think seriously about democracy reforms and the types of reforms that make it harder for extremists to win and that give more voice to the moderate majority. Because right now, the extremes, especially on the far right, have really actually hijacked the system uh, in their favor. And, and we've got to introduce more choice and competition into that system uh, in order to deprive them of the opportunity uh, to, again, take power and, and suppress the rights of the minority. I, I will absolutely recommend Australia's, we call it preferential voting and you call it ranked choice. And I understand you have it in some yeah. electoral yeah. districts and it's it's great. I love Australian democracy, I've got to say. I don't, I don't think I've really had such a granular appreciation of decisions that were made uh, on this very strange little continent um, until everything started to go completely bananas <laughs> in America. And the- well, it is, it's, and it's something for us to admire. I mean, we're learning from our allies right now, and I'm glad you point to ranked choice voting because it's one of the movements right now that's beginning very slowly in this country but has a lot of potential to ameliorate some of the really severe political defects that I've pointed out. Yeah, the idea that that tradition would oblige someone into supporting a Republican candidate who they can't actually stand, like on an ideological or political or principled level, is really terrifying. And to see that level of tribal tribalization, I mean, obviously we have very tribal political culture here. Um, it can get a bit fractious. And like I said, you know, there is an extremist minority who are not averse to violence, 
but the level of threat in the United States. I mean, you write about it in your book that you were subject, you thought you were being stalked, you were receiving constant death threats, somebody threatened, I mean, more than one person threatened to kill Liz Cheney. And this idea that intimidation and violence is now part of the conversation, like that's a hell of an Ovidan window to open. Yeah, we there in fact just a couple of weeks ago there was another survey that just dropped that showed that of course the majority of Americans don't support political violence, but what was shocking about the survey is a really significant number of Americans do. And depending on the question that was asked, anywhere between 15% and 30% of Americans expressed favorable views towards political violence, depending on what the target was. If it was politicians that they didn't like, if it was the other party taking over, um, those are really, really big figures. And they, um, they're supported by a number of other surveys that have come out showing that tens of millions of American adults now have a positive view of using force, using violence to defend their own political candidates. Uh, that's pretty scary stuff. This is no longer... Uh, you know, the MAGA movement is not some political faction that people should consider vile. It is quite literally a public safety and national security threat. And we're seeing that manifest in the views of a lot of its supporters. And, you know, God forbid, I, I think it's possible we see that in um very significant acts of violence. One of the things that I reference in the book is the fears of a lot of democracy experts right now that we're going into a period where we may see a spate of assassination attempts. And, and again, God forbid, successful assassinations of political leaders. And the data shows it. The threat level against U.S. public servants is higher than it's ever been in any period in modern history in the United States. And Fortunately, you know, law enforcement authorities have disrupted a lot of those plots, plots to assassinate Supreme Court justices, plots to uh, attempt to assassinate the Speaker of the House, members of Congress. Uh, you know, there was a judge in Wisconsin who unfortunately was assassinated for apparently political purposes. We've had people attacking FBI offices. It's quite significant. Um, hell, the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence, his life was actually in danger on January 6th. Um, and that type of incident could be a spark that provokes a much wider conflagration. And it's what we have to be wary of. And, 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 and that's what I'm trying to flag and blow back is that we're in that situation now. It is that serious. And that's why people need to put their everyday politics aside and form those coalitions that you mentioned at the beginning, those alliances of strange bedfellows politically who may disagree on the policy issues of the day, but who are united and wanting to protect, uh, again, the understructure of democracy. I'm really interested in the revelation of this particular movement, the way that MAGA has so successfully built cultural spaces because the, the triumph of sort of liberalism in the, the modern West was that liberals had the best art, like liberals had Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and rock music and, you know, this establishment sort of anti-establishment expression that was responsible for accommodating marginalised voices and creating platforms and this sort of inherent 
inherent cultural drive that entertainment was diversity. And yet what I think one of the really interesting innovations of magaculture is that they are building their own cultural spaces where somebody like you becomes literally a folk villain, like the subject of fairy tales told to children. Um, People like my friend Nina Yankovic, who's the disinformation scholar who worked for the Biden administration Mm -hmm. for five minutes before her life was destroyed by (laughs) MAGA attacks, becomes becomes Mm -hmm. this, you know, figure that is associated with these negative sort of fairy stories that they tell. At the same time, you've got Trump art, which is literally as somebody who went to art school, the worst thing I've ever seen. And these, you know, these cultural products and this audience that has been stoked with the values of authoritarianism and violence and 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 bigotry and prejudice are really encouraged. And I just wondered if you thought that we have enough of a response to that, whether our cultural institutions are strong enough to beat that back or if we're failing to grasp that there is now a place for those kinds of personalities to go. Well, I think we failed to respond to it so far. But what gives me hope is that when we look back in history, there are just some really brilliant moments where there's a cultural response to autocracy that helps really make the counter auto, you know, the counter autocratic movement go viral. And a lot of times it happens on delay. I mean, I, it's not the perfect analogy, but if you do look at the rise of fascism in the early 20th century, some of its elements uh, had lead time over the anti-fascist movements is, you know, there was a lot of faux idealism wrapped around uh, fascist movements that made them look innocent when really they had a more nefarious purpose. And it took a while for a cultural movement to oppose it, but it ultimately did. And people banded together in communities against that sort of behavior. I think we're seeing the inklings of it now, um, but I don't think it's anywhere that it needs to be. And we are seeing the other side. We are seeing the anti-democratic side coalesce and unite uh, a lot faster, such that, as you say, they share these absurd memes and paintings of Donald Trump as Batman and Donald Trump as a superhero and as a strong man, you know, throwing trains in the air and saving babies from, you know, attack and just all of all of these, uh, you know, very odd things. But they are building a culture. And I think that counterculture needs to emerge. And it can also be catalyzed when folks realize that the threat is not just within their borders. Like we were talking about earlier, this fight for democracy in the United States isn't one that just American voters need to be concerned about. It's one that our allies across the West and across the world need to be engaged in. And they'll also be instrumental in in sewing the fabric of that counterculture against authoritarianism. And I've got to say, despite how horrific Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been. One of the things that has given me some optimism is you've seen that. You have seen uh, people of like mind across the West who want to defend democracy, not just putting the Ukrainian flag in their Twitter bios, but really sharing and engaging with each other in ways they hadn't since the early days of the Cold War. So, um, you know, unfortunately, it often takes a real moment of threat to bring people together. But we are undoubtedly in that moment. And hopefully the consequence of that 
will be that we do come together. Miles Taylor, you're fabulous and your book is an absolute cracker. I would recommend it to everyone, uh, but probably to pro-democracy activists most of all. I don't want fascists getting any kind of inside track into how we think. And I've got to say, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It really is a playbook of persecution. We'll, we'll, know that every, that we'll know that the evil has passed when we can all get back to being opponents again. But I must say despite everything else that's happened, to be able to have intelligent, respectful, mature conversations about the most important principle of all, which is democracy, with people who are not like me and who have arrived at, uh, you know, the truth and valuation of democracy from another path, that has actually been one of the great compensations of this time. And I'm always very inspired to go online and engage with communities of people who are not like me who share that value. And I think therein is cause for hope and optimism, especially if uh, Trump is going to secure the nomination again. Absolutely. And and I've got to say, again, I have to thank you because you have been such a steadfast voice on this point and um, really unrelenting in your defense of, of democracy, but more importantly, the, there's the values of human freedom and human decency. And, uh, and, and thank you for doing that and for bringing folks together in that fight, that, that cultural counter movement that you say needs to happen against the autocrats, you're actively helping to build it. So I appreciate oh, it. Like I can't think of anything more noble than fighting fascism. And I think more people should do it, frankly. <laughs> but you, you have taken one. <laughs> we should one. sell bumper stickers with that. Yeah, you have taken <laughs> one for the team at a level that most of us can't even imagine. And I really admire you for that. Like courage and bravery and steadfastness and principle, they're important and leadership does matter. And being the person who was willing to come out and go, actually, this is a circus run by lunatics, change the world. We could be on a very different course, all of us, because we are all in this together. You know, where America goes, so goes my country. And we've learned that painfully at times, but we can also learn that with enormous hope and optimism.